Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hey, everybody out there, and welcome to another episode of No Script, No Problem here on the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Do you believe No Script, No Problem is the show that takes you behind the curtain of unscripted television like never before? With insight from some of the best in the business of reality TV, documentary series, competition shows, social experiment, true crime, and much more. From the real world to love fraud to American Idol, if it's unscripted, we'll get into it. I'm your host, Steve Berkowitz. I'm a 15-year veteran producer of unscripted television with shows like Extreme Makeover Home Edition, BattleBots, Outdaughtered, The Rachel Zoe Project, and Friday Night Hikes among my credits. Each week, I talk to the talented people who make unscripted TV, documentaries, true crime, and game shows, not just something you watch, but a cultural phenomenon. Now, if you enjoy No Script, No Problem, please subscribe and rate the show. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and TuneIn. You can also find it on leave.com and at Leave Podcast. You can follow me on Twitter and Clubhouse at Steve Berkowitz and on Instagram at Steve M. Berkowitz. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Leave at leave.com. All right, let's get started. I'm really excited about the show today. My guest is a true pioneer in the genre of unscripted television. He is a showrunner, a director, and a content creator. He is currently under a pod deal at Critical Content where he produces, he creates, and he showruns. His credits include Extreme Makeover Home Edition where he was a showrunner of mine on season eight. He also did season nine. Building Wild for Nat Geo, where I did, I worked on the pilot for him. Border Wars, Stay Here, Home Free, Nashville Star, Murder in Small Town X, Buzzin', Undressed, Fear, and as I mentioned, he's a pioneer. So he is a producer and director on the first four seasons of the original reality show, folks, The Real World. Please welcome George Vershore. George, how are you, sir? Hello, Steve. I'm great. Thank you for that introduction. And I have to ask, was that a scripted intro you did or is that unscripted? I scripted it. I know. So I'm not supposed to do that. Technically, technically, it's no script, no problem. But I did write that. You write it. No, nice to be here. Thank you, Steve. It's great to chat again. You know, yeah, you and I go way back and we should just kind of tell the audience a little bit. I worked for you on season eight of Extreme Makeover Home Edition. And um, that's kind of how we know each other. And then I helped you out on Building Wild and then recently yeah, on, a, yeah. on a Netflix project. As as most people know, uh, the real world, uh, Homecoming New York, it's on Paramount Plus. And you are, you know, one of the pioneers. You were there at the very beginning of this genre with John Murray and Mary Ellis Bunham. And so, you know, with this kind of relaunch this reboot this kind of you know reunion i wanted to to chat about the you know the birth back in 1992 yeah i watched the first episode it just started airing and uh you you actually went back right you went yeah, back to yeah, see everybody yeah. so tell me a little uh-huh, bit about yeah. what, what was it like to get back to the original loft it was incredible i got it it's almost been 30 years so this year will be 29 years you know, 29 years ago, we were there. Yeah, 1991. So yeah, yeah, it was really emotional. I got to say, Steve, it was surprising, not surprising, because it was an emotional experience to do it. And, you know, it was such a game changing and incredible experience for those of us who did that first season that we have this 
intense bond together, you know, yeah. with John and Mary Ellis and the team we did it together with and the cast, you know, it's, it really is this thing that's kept us connected for our entire careers. I mean, I have remained friends with Julie and Heather and Norm and John and, you know, many of the crew members and we get together over the years, like Julie and Heather and Norm came to my wedding, you know, and so. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, and I went to Julie's wedding years ago, so, and Heather and I see each other all the time in New York, and Norm and I, so, and Kevin, I see occasionally, he stopped out, you know, a few years back and saw me in LA, so it, it, it was a game changer, it really was. I mean, yes. I think all of us went into do something challenging and what we thought was exciting. I don't think anyone would have expected that there would be podcasts talking about reality television. <laughs> you know, like no way. You and I would that you and I would be sitting here talking about a multi-billion-dollar genre that yeah started in you know on Prince and Broadway in New York and years ago. But no, and you know so yeah, it was emotional. I got a call from John Murray last fall, um, and he said, "Look, we're Paramount has reached out. They're launching Paramount Plus. Would you be interested in show running? You know, and coming back and." running this uh, reunion for us with the first cast. And I was like, you know, it's just like, absolutely. But unfortunately I was in the middle of producing a Netflix show, which you and I worked on together. Yeah. So yeah, so John said, but look, if why don't you consult? And if nothing, I'd love to have you come back and surprise the cast with me. So he and I, you know, we went there for the week of the shoot and uh, Kevin and Trish who ran the show did just an amazing job of running the, the the reunion and just did an incredible job in the midst of all this COVID and everything else. Right. You know, pulling this team together, they they were able to get the original loft on Prince of Broadway, I which know. was just just unbelievable. It was that alone was such a coup for those guys and Julie Peasy over at Buna Murray. They really worked hard to pull all these pieces together and all the people together. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so we went up there in a for a week. It was really powerful. I gotta say, you know rethinking and going back and you know just kind of digging back up all those stories and moments and putting ourselves back in that time capsule it really was like a time capsule you know like you being sure? trans being transported back into 1992 and so yeah it was it was really amazing and I'm I'm so happy to be you know uh have been a part of this it's uh now it's airing on it's up on Paramount Plus yeah, there's, it's incredible. So yeah, we all came back, the, all seven cast members, uh, myself, John, um, went back and, you know, they produce, I think, six episodes out of this. And um, yeah, it's amazing. It was incredible. Let's back up just a step and talk <clears throat> about the original, you know, the birth of the real world. You were there at the get-go. So this is way back. This is back before anyone had ever used the term reality television. So yeah, yeah, talk to me a little bit about how you came on board and how this kind of crazy idea of putting seven strangers in a house, you know, how did that right. even come about? I mean, I remember I was, a, you know, I was a teenager and, you know, I'm watching music videos on MTV, right? right. right? Yeah. And yeah. how did this, so how did it happen, George? John and Mary Ellis and I met, I was introduced to them a couple of years before the real world back in the late eighties. Uh, they were introduced by Mark Gitkin at uh, William Morris. So John and Mary Ellis were introduced and they, they sold a pilot to a syndication company that I was working at as a junior, like a producer. 
Got it. Uh, within the syndication company and they came in and we did the show together and we hit it off and we just, you know, had a great time. And then they said, Hey, would you come with us to do a show? We just sold at Fox, a documentary series called uh, American families, which was a follow doc series following different families. It was an anthology series about families who are going through a, you know, an intense situation in their lives. So I went and produced that for them. During all that, we took the pilot that we shot together to Natby, in my recollection, in sort of one of the one of the sparks, I think, that launched the genre. We, I was working with a woman named Delilah Loud, who was uh, one of the members of the family, the Loud family, that was okay. featured on P- PBS, you know, the, oh, the famous- Oh, right, okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, so An American Family, which was a doc series in the 70s um, that followed a family in Santa Barbara for six months and then turned it into, you know, 10 episodes or how, forget exactly how many, but they, you know, and then it was, that was kind of the first reality series. Right. And anyway, right. John and Mary Ellis and I were sitting with Delilah and she was telling us the story of what was it like to live and have cameras following you for six months. And she told us the whole story, you know, and John and I just talked about this recently that, you know, they were trying to figure out MTV was looking for how could they do an inexpensive soap opera for, you know, a youth generation. Yeah. And this was one of the light bulbs. I'm, I think there was a couple of other things that they were kicking around to how to do an unscripted version of that. And I think then this sort of, this meeting that we had with Delilah and through other things that John and Mills were thinking about sparked it. And then they shot a pilot uh, with a bunch of assistants, put them in a house for a weekend. And the rest is history that it worked. You know, that pilot was, was produced and, you know, executive Doug Herzog, who yes. I got to give a huge shout out to Doug was Doug was at MTV at the time. He was young. He was running the network. He was just, you know, really taking chances, wanting to, he probably saw the writing on the wall that music videos wouldn't last forever. And he wanted to get into long form content and he was looking, how do I launch that? Sure. So he, he and Lauren Correo, I don't know if you know, Lauren, she's a great executive. She was there at the time okay. and she was overseeing the series for us. And the two of them, you know, then said, yeah, let's go to series with this. Let's take wow. it to series. And John and Mary Ellis said to me, hey, you want to do this? And and my background had been, you know, I was a director, a showrunner, and I was doing, you know, um, producing. I was an editor. So I'd edited for years. So I, okay. I had a kind of a, I'd done a lot of different things. And so we had no money and no crew. So I think... You know, when they got the order for the series, they said, uh, you know, are you, you want to do this and show run this for us? And I jumped at it because not only did it sound like something completely, you know, challenging and unorthodox, but I thought, you know, it's like extreme makeover. Like, you know, you know, that feeling, Steve, yeah. how do you, oh, yeah. how do you pull, how do you pull off? How do you do it? How are we going to do it? How do you pull right. off the impossible? And I right. just thought, oh, yeah, I just dig that. I'm like, I'm in. <laughs> you know me, Steve. I'm a little oh, yeah. nutty in that way. So I'm yeah. like, yes, I'm, I'm in, please. And, you know, I think John and Mary Ellis, you know, Mary Ellis's background was in soap opera and, you know, running soaps. And John was, his background was, you know, news documentary and mine was production and, you know, running sets. So I think we, the three of us, you know, made a good team. And I really got to thank John and Ellis for giving me that shot because I was a young guy, hadn't really taken the reins of a, of a show like this. 
And that was the beauty of MTV in the days, right? That they yeah. they yeah. would say, go. Yeah, Doug was so cool. He was like, he was kind of rock and roll and saying, hey, do something that's going to really shake things up, you know, really push it. And so we we went to New York in the fall of 1991. And I spent several months looking for the first loft you know I was looking for the loft we were casting we were crewing up um, and you know we had little money I mean I I, I don't want to quote the number but I can say it was a, a, about a fourth of what or, or a third of probably a fourth of what we spend today on a typical show it was very wow. inexpensive there were like there were about seven or eight of us that were doing it behind the scenes it was John and Ellis and I and uh you know, a small team because of about six or seven people along with camera guys and stuff like that. But, and the one thing I, I do want to say, because I think your audience, you know, knows this, you know, as it knows the industry, I got to say, like, there was a few people in addition to Doug and Lauren, a guy named Alan Cohn was the editor of that pilot. Okay. And, and Alan just created magic in the edit bay. I got to say, Alan was the guy that took all of this doc looking footage and then figured out he flutter cutted it. He cut it to music. Right. He, he non-lineared it. He, he would go to interviews and snap backwards and forwards. And he was in a closet. I remember <laughs> Alan, we were, he literally was in like a closet in a production office. We were working out of to do the Fox series and he was cutting the pilot and I'd go in and talk to him and look at the cut he was doing. And literally he, created that narrative structure and style in uh, on you know in Burbank in that closet or in that pilot and wow. from that he and a guy named Jim Jones who had directed the pilot you know with the Dutch angles and stuff like that you know and and the camera style with snap zooms and kind of Batman stuff and yeah and then and then when we went to New York finding the loft I sort of said, you know, like we all came up with the style myself and John and Mary else. We were saying like, let's visually create this art direction that is kind of a speed bump on TV, right? So when you're flipping the channels, remember in 1992, TV was pretty boring, you know, sitcoms. It was mostly sitcoms. sitcoms. and dramas. Yeah, it was sitcoms. That's right. Sitcoms, sitcoms and right. dramas, period. That's right. Yeah. That's, that's it, period. And there wasn't anything like it. So when people were flipping the channels and they saw this, there were, it was a huge speed bump. Yeah. And they're like, what is this? So anyway, we had a ball. We went there in 90, fall of 91. We did the casting. We did the, found the loft um, on Prince and Broadway. And at the time in reality television, you know, it had never been done before. So the, all of the systems and workflow and how do you follow real people seven days a week, 24 hours a day? And then how do you shoot that? How do you follow it? And then, and then how do you collate all that and craft it into a three act structure? Right. It had, it had simply never been done, Steve. All of these things now you look at when you work on a show like you and I do all the time, you look at, oh, there are loggers and there's this, right. and there's, yeah. there's, you know, there's microwave transmitters for the cameras and there are, you know, none of that existed and no one had even thought of how do you do it? And those are the decisions we were in the, things we were inventing we didn't have internet you know there was no email yeah that's right no email 
no email, no really. Cell phones were like the size of a shoebox, so they right. sort of the worked. Michael Douglas, yeah, the Michael Douglas, yeah, cell phones. right. That's right, the Michael Douglas cell phones. So you had like right. you know you always carried around like six rolls of quarters in your pockets to hit a payphone to try to call somebody if you're out on the road. Yeah. Oh my God. And uh, anyway, and then Post was in LA, and you know we'd shoot sixty hours a week, and we had to figure out like how do we narrow sixty hours to twenty three minutes and thirty seconds. Yeah, wow. And and that I could talk three days about about how we figured out the logging system, the tracking system, the carding system, how you card up the story, and you know all those and get sure. in the weeds on that. But sure, yeah. Anyway, it was remarkable. It, it, it's it was just so much fun. And then the the cast when they walked in the door for the first time, it took off. It was just like a lightning bolt. You know, it was like we saw in that first first day this works because casting right i mean it's always said sure. if, yeah. if it's great great casting and that first cast was incredible because they came in so on you know there was no thing nothing for them to reference so they had right. never seen it there's and every season i did the next three seasons of it and it got harder and harder to find people who hadn't been influenced by watching it Sure. But this first cast, they'd never seen it before. So they came in and there was this tension, you know, there was a creative tension because they were thinking this is purely documentary. And we were thinking a little bit, you know, is it doc? Is it soap operas? So even John right. and Mary Ellis and I and the network execs were wrangling. And then the network was a little nervous about well, what if nothing happens, right? Of because course. Yeah. That was the big question. They were saying, yeah, well, you're going to shoot for you know, all these weeks, you got to come out with 13 episodes. What if nothing happens? What if they go in there and they sit on their hands and do nothing? Initially, the concept was let's drop pebbles in the pond. Let's, let's make stuff happen. Sure. And we, you know, my background was in documentary and I studied it and knew it and the camera guys and a lot of the folks were came out of that world. And myself and Bill Richmond, who's the other director, and Rob Fox, the two directors, who are great guys. They had been around the MTV world. And a woman named Danielle Feraldo, who was our associate producer. We all felt like, you know, we were younger and kind of of the age of the cast. We were like, you can't do this to people. You know, you can't. This is a doc. It's either one or the other. In those days, it was yeah. either pure, pure doc or it's pure game show, right? Yeah. We tried it a little, we tried some things, you know, let's set up a date, let's, and then the cast rebelled and had a big, you know, mutiny and they were like- <laughs> <laughs> They were rebelling back then, now the game- Oh, yeah, Steve, come on. Yeah, they were, come on, yeah, it's, so it was, it was a lot of, it was really fun in terms of the formation of, because when we went in, it was like, we were applying all these cinema verite rules right. to it at first. Like you're the palace guard. No one talks to the cast. Right. Nobody. The only people that talk to the cast are George and John and Mary Ellis and Danielle. Camera guys, if you you do not say anything, you can say good morning, but you don't say anything. So there was just separation, right, between them and us. And it was awkward and weird. And because at the same time, behind the scenes, the executives were saying, how do you generate story? You know, watching the first episode of, you know, Real World Homecoming New York, you're struck pretty quickly by 
the social dynamic of what they argued about in, in 1992, you know, a lot of the racial tension that was going on in the House, um, you know, that made headlines. And now looking at the whole Black Lives Matter movement and all of the unrest that happened in 2020 in the summer, it's sad, to be honest, that a lot of the same discussions that were happening in the real world house in 92 that now, you know, are still being had, you know, those same discussions, those same issues yeah. are still relevant yeah. here in America. I guess at the time, there really wasn't a show anything like this that was the voice of the youth generation, right? Yeah. There wasn't anything out there. There just simply wasn't anything on TV that so rawly gave voice to there wasn't social media there wasn't anything right. where people could express how they're feeling this was the first of this form that gave voice to these young people like kevin and you know norman and heather b and julie and andre and eric it gave them like a raw opportunity to just be a normal person and then step into the spotlight and speak on behalf of this generation and so at the time it was, you know, it had been going on, you know, race, racial issues and gender issues and sexuality and all of these things had been under the surface forever prior to that, right? There wasn't a gay character on TV that, you know, Norm was, I think, the first. Kevin Powell, who was articulating the racial challenges and struggles that he had lived through. And, and so that was really groundbreaking. So when the show aired, people were not only shocked by the genre, but by how all of these relevant issues of the times, whether it's racism and, you know, gender issues and all this political issues going on and homelessness. And yeah, it's sad to me that, you know, going back to this, you know, and thinking back 30 years, we've kind of progressed in some ways, bit. yeah, a little bit. And maybe this has moved the needle to a degree. And I think it's, I, I'm hopeful because I think it's all surfacing. I think everything like shows like this have a positive effect because I think it it forces people to address things. It forces the conversation. Yeah. And I think this this started the conversation, at least sure. was part of what started it. And I think in subsequent years, like when we did the San Francisco season, when we had Pedro on and I, yeah. you know, we cast Pedro and he and his partner, Sean, were married on the show. And, you know, we followed Pedro with HIV and AIDS and he ended up dying. And, you know, so... Norman on the first season opened that door, right? He opened the door to give the, you know, the courage to other, for others to speak up. And so, and I think that's happening today. More and more people, the, the ease of cameras now, the iPhones and cameras now, everyone has a camera. It's giving people the courage to, to capture it and, and speak and say it. Um, whether we've progressed, I don't know. I'm not sure. I think we're going through this transition period yeah, with so many of these things that it's going to take, I think, a generation or two to hopefully <laughs> peel that skin off, you know, and yeah. move beyond it because it resurfaces again and again. But it was a reminder when we went back for this that those issues we were covering then are still relevant today and it's still important today. Yeah. And I got, and I, you know, we had a huge, you know, it was so powerful and so great to see Norm and, Heather and Kevin and those guys and just thank them for being that brave, you know, because keep in mind, 
this was really gutsy for Norm to step out there and go out and say, and I'm gay and I'm living this lifestyle because his folks were from the Midwest and very conservative and they didn't even really know his life. And now we were going to yeah. show it on TV. It had never been done before. Like that was so courageous on his part to say, stand up and say, I am going to show the world who I am. And for Kevin to then stand up and say, I need to express this is how I feel as a black man living in America. And this is how I, this is what I grew up with. And this is how I've been treated. So the courage it took, I got to say that to me, because it's a little not easier today to do that because there's different circumstances today. But at the time, to step out there on stage and say that, no one, nobody, there wasn't social media, there wasn't these right. platforms. So it took a lot of guts. Anyway, I just, I just that, that to me was one of the most powerful things going back for this reunion to sit in the same room that those guys talked about those things 30 years ago and to see them sitting next to me, it was so profound and moving that these guys deserve, you know, huge props. Agreed. The, the flashback that they show in, uh, you know, in the episode one of the, of the homecoming of the argument between Kevin yeah. and Julie, the very famous, right, right. I know that you've, you've told me a couple of times that that was, that there's a story behind that. So that one was, you know, we were going along in the season and we'd had a couple of, you know, very challenging, creative and uh, situations that, you know, issues surfaced that were really difficult. But on that day, I was on my way to Brooklyn to film with Norman. He, Norm had a, he was, he was an artist and he had a studio in Brooklyn and I was on my way out there. And I had that giant shoe phone I was talking about earlier and the thing was buzzing and, you know, ringing and I pick it up and they're like, you got to get back to the loft. Julie and Kevin are going at it. And at the time, like today, we'd have five or six cameras, right? Or sure. lots of cameras. Then we only had one, you know, or two. And there were these giant beta cams that you had to plug in with triax cable and you had to like re-rig them to go in and out. So anyway, we run back to the house and... Julie's distraught. Kevin is nowhere to be seen. And, you know, Norman comes in and says, what happened? And it was sort of Rashomon. We missed it because we didn't have plant cameras like today right, in a lot of yeah. these shows. Yep. You have surveillance cameras throughout the house that roll 24-7 and you'd capture it, right? Yeah. Well, we, did, we didn't have those. So we came back and we were just going to follow the real-time unfolding of what went down. So it was a challenge story from a story point of view of, okay, Julie claimed, you know, she and Kevin got in an argument that Julie claimed that Kevin had, you know, thrown a something at the toward her and he said he didn't. And so it was a, he said, she said, and, you know, and, but the, at the core of it was this question of race and it went there. And at the time, at that moment, the riots were going on in LA, right. literally the same week. So there was this tension in New York and in the air. I mean, MTV had evacuated their building in New York, you know, because of the fear of, you know, uh, sort of riots in New York and other things. So there was this existing tension. And then this surfaced where Julie, who was from Alabama, and Kevin from New Jersey got into this heated argument, which probably a lot of the people listening are somewhat aware of it. But they got into an argument about what is race at the core of what Julie's accusing 
Kevin of doing? Is race a motivator? And Julie right. would say, absolutely not. It had nothing to do with it. I'm just trying to treat you as somebody who is mistreating me. And it got, it just, it moved off of that argument and turned into this racial debate about, you know, this existing racism in America. Right. And, and it just escalated and it, you know, was started in the house and then we were filming and then it went out on Broadway. They, they ended up going outside. And I remember we were literally running out to try to capture it on this corner there. And I was standing there and as they were arguing, we started to build a crowd around us. We had probably, right. you know, 20, you know, cause people thought it had to do with the riots in LA. They thought we were like a news crew covering, uh, you know, this African-American man with a, a white woman arguing about race. And it wasn't, it was the real world on the corner of Prince and Broadway. Right. And they were arguing and it, it was uncomfortable, you know, really uncomfortable to witness because they were really in each other's face and the crowd was getting bigger. And I remember I had to intervene at one point and say, look, we got to go back inside. And, and it was hard to tell that story because we missed the beginning. So we did our best to represent the story, right? And say, look, Kevin, this is his perspective. Julie, this is your perspective. You know, Norm and the others sort of asked all the questions. But it was one of the first times race really came to the forefront in the show. And yeah. it was it was really opening that door to like, okay, what's really underneath all this? And what is Kevin trying to express here? What is he really trying to say? And it isn't just a simple argument between roommates. This is a broader issue that is systematic and throughout the country. It, it was tough. I don't know. You know, it was really hard. And then, you know, Becky and Kevin also had a similar discussion in the house and, right. you know, and I felt really bad for Kevin and I, you know, and speaking with him again, he unfairly, many people would say, oh, he was angry. He was this. And I think, no, he, he was being real. He was being himself and he was trying to get out what many have said today. He was yes. way ahead of his time, way ahead right? of his time. Yes, way 100%. ahead of his time, saying yeah. what everyone is saying today. So that seems rather obvious today. He was trying to say then now, and he admittedly, and he'd say this too. Did it come out the the absolute right way? Did he make some? Did he say some things he wishes he hadn't? Sure, but you know what? You got to keep in mind these are young people, really right. young, twenty yeah. somethings, in the heat of a moment with a camera pointing at you. That with reality TV had never been on before. They didn't know how this was going to be cut and formed, right? They were just yeah. being themselves. It was interesting, yeah, to see that raw, you know, that unfiltered look that you and I both know. It's hard to get cast to be unfiltered anymore because they've been watching Unscripted for 30 years. So yes. they, they're way more That's aware. Right. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. It, it was no, at pretty, that time. Yeah. yeah. No, that's right. And that first cast, again, it's very hard to put yourself in that position. They had no idea of what was going to become of this footage, what the show would look like, how it would be edited, how it would impact or whether anyone would watch it. So it was just pure and authentic. And in subsequent seasons, which I ended up doing three more after the New York season, it was very hard to find people who are 
not influenced by watching the show. It was like now it became sort of the dog chasing his tail where people came in with expectations of playing a character. And, uh, you know, in that first season, they were 100% just, they were, yeah, they, they knew like, okay, Julie wasn't a fool. She knew, okay, I'm the innocent 19 year old from Alabama. Yeah. But she wasn't playing it. She didn't really say, okay, I'm going to give you a seat. You know what I mean? It was just real. And yeah. Kevin was real. He's just expressing, this is my, this is my truth. Heather was doing the same, you know, Andre, Norm, all these guys. It was also like from a producing and storytelling telling point of view, it's, it's like live TV, right? It's happening in real time. Yep. So you're having to make ethical choices back in the day that now seem obvious, right? With risk assessment and sure. safety and all of these questions about what are we, what's fair game for us to air and how do we balance this to do a, you know, a fair portrayal and how do we, you know, not, you know, get this wrong. And that was really tough, particularly on a limited budget, limited crew, limited time, all of that stuff in 23 minutes, you know, that argument went on for a day and a half. And so we had to tell it in 23 minutes, you know, but I think we did a, you know, we tried to do our best, but going back, like on this journey back, you know, it was interesting to see, and this was part of the reason I think, you know, Kevin and everyone was go back to, to, you know, to heal those, those things, you know, to let those wounds heal and get some closure to those things and try to tell what happened. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, tell sure. the full, full, full story, which I was so excited that they got that chance, especially Norm, who felt he was portrayed a little inaccurately in the first season that, you know, that he was bisexual and versus gay and the gay right. community really, really, he went through a hard time in his life because the gay community really didn't support him to what he thought he was hoping they would, you know, yeah. it was, it was, a, it was a challenging period for him. Four years is, is a long time, specifically on a show that's, you know, that involved when you look at those four seasons, what do you find to be the most impactful moment or are there, are there a handful of moments that you look back and you're like, I will always remember that. Yeah. That first season, I will say, I still do see even listening to you ask that question. I just get chills thinking of the first day they walked in the door in the loft oh. in New York. I mean, I'll just never forget that feeling of putting together this cast, right? Spending months and months and months to find those people that represent a city and represent a generation and all that. And then watching them walk through the door and they just come to life, right? You let them yeah. go. You yeah. just, it's like letting kids run or birds fly. It's, it's, I know it's a cheesy analogy, <laughs> but once, yeah. you, you know, like once you, once you let it go, it was such an explosive, powerful feeling that I'll never forget that first day, how it just took off. And I was like, wow, this is going to be like chasing lightning every day because these guys are so smart and so expressive. And the combination of those seven people kind of exponentially exploded from a story potential and human potential of where they could take us. And you know what I mean? Yeah. And that, that I'll never forget. And then in season three with the Pedro season, you know, with Puck and Pedro, Right. That that season, I, I ran that season. I was the showrunner on that, and I cast both of them. You know, John and Mary Alice and I, when we found Pedro, I'll never forget being in Miami with Lisa Berger, one of the executives. She was there at the time, and John and Mary Alice and I, and the first 
literally the first 20 seconds, Pedro walked in the door and sat down. And as soon as he started speaking, we were all just, we levitated in the room. It was like you were in the presence of somebody who was brought here for a specific, to deliver a message, to deliver, to change, to change the world, to shift the world in a direction. And man, I get a chill just thinking about that moment when we met Pedro and it, what we felt, the world felt too, because when that show aired, I think he really changed, you know, the world in a way to, to bring acceptance and tolerance and understanding to this, you know, to the gay lifestyle and, the, you know, these choices he had made and, 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 uh, and I'll never forget being in the hospital with him when he died. Oh, wow. uh, just before just before he died so we had finished shooting the san francisco season in june we shot for 20 weeks in san francisco and it was a marathon steve you know how tough those oh, are yeah. right and yeah and that season particularly because with everything that happened with puck and with pedro and all the things we just had a such a powerful experience and then you know and then pedro went to new york to do press the week after we finished shooting and he ended up in the hospital in New York, in St. Vincent's, and because he was suffering from PML because of uh, HIV and AIDS, his, he was losing his cognitive abilities. And he was admitted to the hospital. And I mean, this was a week, Steve, after we finished yeah. filming. Yeah. And, and so I flew to New York and I, was, I brought a camera because I, that's what I did. I just filmed everything. And I walked into St. Vincent's and I had a beta cam on my, you know, and Pedro said, yes, please turn it on. And I want to talk to you. And it was just me. It was just me kneeling beside his bed. And he was talking into the camera and he said, George, please keep going. Don't stop. I, this story needs to be told right to the end. And I want people to know, you know, the entire story of my life. And I literally had tears running down my yeah. cheeks, Steve. And I'll never forget that. And that moment airs aired on a special we did about Pedro's life. And then, you know, Bill Clinton ended up calling. It was just amazing. It was just an amazing. So there are these moments, Steve, where it 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 became bigger than reality TV. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. It was life itself where, wow, here we are documenting this young man who is only, you know, 22, 23, who's dying of AIDS and this is now the real world like yeah i never yeah. thought and that that's the power of the genre and the capacity of it was to go there and then really capture real life and so that to me was you know wow that yeah. was really really profound you know you and i both we both did extreme makeover home edition and certainly you know you sure. have those uh, those types of moments as you're you know you're there with pedro and you know he doesn't have much longer left what what went through your mind there as like i mean you are literally in it with uh you know someone who you're close with a cast member who's really making a statement for the whole world what was that like wow i'm i'm like tearing up thinking about it but it's just intense gratitude steve just overwhelming gratitude and privilege of knowing this person like i was in the presence of of somebody who is like this divine intervention. I really yeah. believe that, that he divinely came to this world to experience this TV show. You know, in a way, I know it sounds cheesy, but he did. He came on Rear World with a mission. 
he yeah. wanted to tell the story and he wanted to show the world about his life and and gain acceptance by by example and he he did that and so i guess in that little sliver that 15 minutes i was kneeling by his bed i could just see it all flash of him i had that understanding of and you you and i experienced this on extreme makeover many many times when you're in the presence of these heroes right yes. yeah that have the that have that capacity to transcend the the daily needs of their own life to to do something for the greater good that was pedro zamora he was just that same sort of human and it was it was un, it was profound and i feel you know honored to been able to document it and capture it and uh and you know and then you know he ended up passing away he died uh literally and this is you know he was he got transferred from st vincent's down to miami he literally steve was in the hospital all summer long as the show was airing mm -hmm. and bill clinton bill clinton's office contacted us and said is there anything that i can do anything that we can help because Chelsea is a huge fan of your show, you know, and we're like, yeah. wow, that's, you know, and at the time that was, that was, that was pretty amazing that reality TV was getting, you know, contacted yeah. by the president. And so Pedro's family said, Pedro said, yes, my brother and sister are still in Cuba. Could you possibly help them with visas to come to the U S and he granted them visas and they came from Cuba. They got into the U S and we're able to see Pedro and Pedro ended up dying the night that the last episode of San Francisco aired, he died that night. So it was wow. the 20, 24th episode aired on like a Thursday night and he died the next morning. Those early seasons, they really did things in terms of talking about issues that no one else wanted to talk about. And that is something, you know, we, we can talk a lot about how, oh, it started reality television, but the real world, those, those cast members and, and you as producers, you brought up yeah. issues that, that really, to be honest, and you and I know this, a lot of people don't want to talk about today on shows. No, no. You no, know, no, like no. Yeah. we both yeah. have, we both have pitched shows that are like, oh, and we're going to dig in and these, th you know, they're going to talk oh, about yeah. race. They're going to talk about religion. And you and I both know network execs, they kind of look at us like, are you guys crazy? Like, yeah, we don't want yeah, to talk yeah. about that. Yeah. Yeah. And I got it. That, that's where Doug Herzog and MTV and Lauren Correo, you know, like Lauren was an incredible, you know, guiding force creatively you know, of encouraging John and Mary Ellis and those of us on the team to uh, to really capture that, you know, because they, because remember, you know, MTV at the time was all music videos. It was music right. videos and no yeah. MTV raps and some of that stuff. But then once Real World came on and and we, by the way, we were able to use all the music from MTV at the time. We had Guns <laughs> yes. N' Roses and REM and Peter Gabriel. Sure. And so the show looked and sounded amazing because we had this soundtrack that was just like a movie. So, and that was for the first few seasons, but no, they, those guys at MTV, I got to give them props because they gave us license to do it and they didn't censor us. You know, they didn't, they let us do that because I don't think you would have gotten away with it at networks or other, they, right. you know, there wasn't yeah. really cable TV at the time. You That's know what true. I'm saying? There wasn't the, the, proliferation of channels and options it was just a few uh outlets so props to those guys for saying yeah do it and say it and 
you know, and we'll support you. You know, we're, we're, we got your back and they did. And John and Mary Ellison, John is a, he's, he's a gay man, you know, and he is, this was an important story for him. I know it was, I was there with him, you know, during the whole journey. And John and Mary Ellison, I had a lot of, a lot of challenging ethical questions and creative questions behind the scenes, you know, like, what do we say? How do we say it? Do we show it? How long do we show it? You know, you know, is it, and those today seem mundane, but at the time it was like, you know, no one, it it was unprecedented. There was no precedent. So we were like, yeah, breaking, breaking the rules with every episode, you know, talking about abortion, talking about race, talking about the Midwest, like John Brennan in season two, you know, this kid who was a conservative Republican Christian from the Midwest. And then we threw him in the house in LA with a bunch of very liberal Venice beach types. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, so there were those questions of red state, blue state, you know, and it all seems obvious now, but at the time it was like, Whoa, we're talking a lot about the production and the shooting, but the editorial side of this, you know, the editing of this was also where the magic, you know, Alan Cohen sort of set the bench, the benchmark of how to do it. And he's sort of the style, but guys like Oscar Dechter and Jason Sands and Sean Travis and Bob Fisher and Gordon Cassidy and all these guys on the post team. And, you know, that were just unbelievable that came in and helped figure out like, how do you take this mountain of footage and collate it into a, you know, a three act structure. Those early years, I got to, you know, that yeah, whole thing we, sure. we could talk for days just about how that was done you know it's pretty exciting that now the, the this reunion's happening and john and i actually make a little cameo in it it was kind of fun to surprise the cast they didn't know we were in town and we went in and surprised the cast so uh stay nice. tuned where i think we 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 go in and it was really powerful to you know walk in the door being on the other side of the camera is a little nerve wracking for me. I was like, <laughs> it's like, I don't know, but uh, it was fun. It, it was, it was pretty cool. Nice. I, well, I, I'm, I can't let you go without at least asking a, uh, an extreme makeover home edition question. Right. Yeah. So yeah. You did two yeah. seasons. Right. Is there an episode or a moment that you will always remember? Is there a favorite family or a favorite episode one first flash and there's so many right that yeah. i'm sure you have too yeah one of them could remember hall family the baseball yes, player that we covered. I wrote that down i wrote it down yeah man man that what was his first name i'm blanking on his first name uh, but anyway the hall carl. family and carl carl was it yeah carl hall richita kansas he was a baseball player that had been paralyzed from the neck down in a freak car accident I'll never forget, Steve, and you were there, right, on that, yes, on that episode with me, right? Yes, I was. I'll never forget, we built a batting cage. He was a semi-pro baseball player, and his dream was to be able to pitch a baseball to his son. And he was just unbelievable. What a nice guy and yes. so friendly. And just his outlook on life was so positive and it was inspiring. It just made us all laugh. And I'm like, wow, what a hero. This guy is just, here he is, you know, paralyzed from the neck down, and he's still glowing with joy and love for life and he said his dream was to pitch a ball to his young son he wanted to pitch a baseball and remember we came up with that sip and puff baseball thing and it was and he went that moment when he bent over and you know blew into that straw that then launched a baseball in a pitcher in a pitching machine 
in that batting cage we built and his young son took a swing and hit swing. the ball. Yeah. I don't know. For me, that was just, it was like the power of design and how yes. design and yes. can change lives. Right. I mean, every day we would build homes and change lives through design and home. And that was just one example. The other one, I think for me, the, the pinnacle of that was when we had the old, you know, Michelle Obama on. and that, that experience was incredible that, right. uh, you know, we, we had, she came and, you know, we, we went to the white house and door knocked the white house. That was one of the first things I remember meeting with ABC and they were like, we want to, you know, raise the bar on the show and we want bigger <laughs> celebrities and bigger, this and bigger that. And I'm like, Oh, okay. I, they said, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I want to, you know, I want to go door knock the white house. And they all laughed. And then two years later we got it. So that was pretty cool. There that you was go. an amazing, that was an amazing. What about for you? What was your, yeah, what so I mean, I have things? a couple. There's a couple. Um, I mean, one came before you were there and is a very personal one with the Creasy family. Mrs. Creasy was a teacher of the year in North Carolina and um, was dying um, of cancer. And it was my first season and my first real experience with like, oh, hey, you've got to sit down and do those tough interviews. And that was, you know, I was yeah. not used to doing something i had done plenty of quote-unquote serious interviews but nothing like that mm -hmm. and so yeah. i started to talk to her and you know you know how like when you're interviewing someone you got all your questions written and i noticed that she was just not buying you know what i was selling and sure. i finally yeah. i looked at her and i put all the questions down i put the computer down and i just started talking to her and for two hours, yep. we just talked and I cried and she cried and it was the best interview wow. I've ever done. Just, wow. it yeah. was yeah. amazing. Connecting like on a human level. On a and human just level. Connecting. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, and that to me was, you know, a big part of that show was just letting these, like you called them heroes, these heroes, you know, she was teacher of the year and, uh, you know, we had Reese Witherspoon on that episode. And so it that was, to me, was that one of those moments. The other one was in you you know you were with me at fort hood um, oh wow the fort wow, hood yeah. episode yeah like yes. where he's yeah so for the audience it was a it was that was one of our longer weeks that was so we yeah. had to do a yeah. wedding and and a house in that episode uh it was a um an army hero who had been shot at fort hood um and couldn't walk when we right he couldn't walk when we no he, no yeah, right. wheelchair he bound, yeah. He was wheelchair bound and yet he was he found a way to walk or to get up and, and on with a cane and walk down the aisle, which was pretty yeah. pretty wow. damn impressive. And the yeah. first one I remember I, I did Baltimore, which which we oh could talk goodness. for two days about. Oh yes. my goodness, Baltimore. We'll never forget still the trauma of that. But I'll never forget that we were building eleven thousand square feet in a week, which was Un, it was ridiculous and crazy and we had storms and everything else but it was a school for inner city kids who were showing academic promise right, right. it was called boys hope boys hope girls hope yeah and it was for young people who had academic promise but were in really challenging living situations so they could move into this school so we were building a school for these young kids and i remember walking around the build site one day and I came around a corner and there's this man and he said, can I shake your hand? And I said, yeah, of course. And I said, who are you? And he said, well, my daughter is going to go to this school and I'm her dad and I'm struggling. I don't have a job, but I'm really struggling in my life. But I wanted to come here today to help 
this is the least I could do was to help build this wall oh, to, wow. cha to change my daughter's life. I'll never forget that little moment with that father who humbly was like acknowledging, look, I can't do everything, but if yeah. I'm part of the bigger community, right? With the help yeah. of me and thousands of others, we can right. make an impact. And that's what I think you, Steve, you and I and Brady and the whole team, Max and all those folks, Brielle and everyone loved about that show is the power of community mm -hmm. and how when you get behind an, a, a story that strikes a chord with all of us, it just, you can pull off the impossible, right? You can yep. just do the impossible, which you, which every week we would be, you, you know, you sat right next to me <laughs> in the booth. Yeah. We would be in tears all the time, right? I mean, yep. we yep. would be in just, just in the presence of these people who are making a difference in their lives, just doing their best, you know, was, yeah. anyway, that, that to me, like those, that's, reality tv at his best at, at its, its best, best i think you know yeah. that in the early seasons of real world the when real it wasn't world. yeah yeah that's those were great career opportunities yeah. i feel feel really lucky to be part of them all right well i wanted to ask you that you're actually the perfect person to to ask about this so so on facebook okay yeah uh there, there's some uh you know producer organizations or groups on facebook some of some of them yeah you know, yeah there was a, a very long thread with hundreds of responses to this particular post that I think is, you know, uh, very worthy of a discussion. Uh, here was the post. I'm so sick yeah. of posts saying you need HGTV slash dating slash crime experience. A good showrunner or producer will know what to do for any project, regardless of the topic. They just want to tell the best story. And if they're good, they can do so regardless of their background. Now, most of the comments that came after were supportive of this uh, person. Most were very much in agreement. And there were actually editors and directors who also said they had experienced something similar. But there was uh, also some pushback. Um, one person said, um, sadly, your premise is not quite right. Each network has a subtle but important secret sauce that only people who have worked in some capacity for that network would know. Another person wrote, just because a doctor has mainly done heart surgeries doesn't mean they could be a brain surgeon on the first try. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so I ask you, you, like, like, like me, we've both done multiple genres. You know, you, you started out in pure, real-world, hands-off, fly-on-the-wall type shows. You then have moved and done big network shows on the renovation side, extreme, home-free. Now you're, you know, in the streaming world doing other types of shows. What would you say to this person who's posting this and is a little frustrated at this kind of, you know, world that feels exclusive? And I think you know where that yeah. person is coming from. I completely support whoever, you know, this premise that I believe a good storyteller and a good showrunner can do virtually anything. Now, that said, you need to connect to the, the subject, you know, deeply. You just can't yes. go. I don't think it's not just, oh, I can go do anything, because if I don't really passionately believe in the subject and in the, in the story that I need to tell, then I, I'm not going to do it to its the best ability that you know maybe somebody else can 
for me, I've always looked in my career like I love the challenge of jumping from different genres. You know, I've done Live sure. Live. I did Nashville Star. I did Pure Verite with The Real World. I did, you know, horror. I, I produced and directed Fear, which was right. an MTV, you know, sort yeah. of scary show. It was kind of groundbreaking at the time. I did Small Town X, which was a hybrid, right? Yeah, that's right. So for me, I just have an immense curiosity and love for like, different ways of telling great stories. So I don't think you have to stay in one lane. I don't think you have to be like, okay, you're the HGTV guy. You're the, you know, I, I it, to me, it's like anthropology. You just have to have immense curiosity and, and, and adaptability and to be able to absorb things really quick and also be humble to say, I don't know, you know, like say, yeah, I don't know sure. this. And then you can put a great team around you. I mean, these shows are not made by one person. Showrunners aren't the only person who does these shows. You get like you and I on Extreme. Yeah. You were the you know supervising producer. You did the writing. You did you know all yes. the background, all, everything going on. You know, GT was our director and the camera guys and the you know. So I think as long as you surround great people with great teams. You, you, it's you can go anywhere you can do anything it depends on is that person bringing a great team with them right because it's not just you it's who you're going to bring with you steve that's a great but point. that's the question that's the question yeah. i would ask is great, great steve point. you want to come you want to come do this show over here for us we're going to do this new netflix series and it's in this space yeah i think you're an incredibly talented person in this but here's where i see your weakness might be how can you make up for that yeah, that would be the question I'd ask. And you can, always, you know, that's where there's great partnerships. I've worked with a guy named Will Spute for 20 years. He is an incredible producing partner who brings something I don't to the to our partnership. Right. But on the buyer's side and on the network side, it's it's what we were just talking about, about real world. It's all risk assessment. Right. Yes. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's all about it's all about am I going to lose my job and am I, are my kids <laughs> going to have to be pulled out of private school because you screwed this up? Yeah. And <laughs> it's like, so put yourself on their side of the table and say, okay, am I going to give this job to this person? Because this could go terribly wrong. And I'm, do I want to stick my neck out for this yeah. person? Yeah. And so I get it. I get it from their side. They need some assurance that you're going to pull it off. And the days of like MTV were, Doug Herzog and those guys said, here, George, here, the reins run with it. You know, yes. luckily I had a lot of great people with me, you know, and who helped carry the water and figure this out and, you know, like all the shows. So anyway, I think it's, it's complicated, but I get it on the network side and there is, you know, I'm doing a Netflix series right now and I've done a couple of other Netflix series and they have a way of, they want things done. They have a style and a storytelling you know sensibility that they yes. want to know you know and if you haven't proven that well what what are you going to say to convince them to say you know what can you do to convince them and i think that's our job is to, okay you haven't done it but convince me you can and i think that's what we have to do is to get those opportunities to say yeah, yeah. i can't i don't have this but i have that so yeah. i would say never take no figure out a workaround anticipate what they're going to find in your shortcomings and then <laughs> you know what i mean i i do yeah i mean i think uh yeah I, you, all your points are very valid and i certainly understand the frustration coming out of this post having dealt with that on multiple occasions being told you can't do 
a female ensemble docu soap. Yeah. Yeah, you know, like yeah. I, I think every person, you know, the, the higher you go up the chain, the more you are told, well, stick in your lane, you do this type of show. So, yeah. So I think I definitely see a lot of the, the points that you make. Um, you know, I, I agree that I was very fortunate that earlier on when I was a soup, I got opportunities to dip my toe into multiple subgenres. You know, yeah, Brady yeah. gave me that up. Brady Canal, who's been on the show, gave uh -huh. me the opportunity to do extreme. And I learned the renovation genre. Derek Wan, great, great executive yeah. who's now yeah. at Netflix, gave me the opportunity to do the docu subgenre with the Rachel uh -huh. Zoe project. Uh -huh. I didn't know anything about fashion. I didn't know anything about design until Brady gave me that opportunity. Right. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. if people don't give you opportunities to learn that subgenre, then you can't be a showrunner. As yeah, eventually yeah, at yeah. That. So I do think that, that, that this idea that you can't do something is, is not correct. I, no, I agree isn't. with it you. Isn't. Yeah, I agree with you, though, that I, I, I now on both sides of this, I know that when you're a network exec, you have to feel 100% comfortable that, you know, showrunner X is not going to burn you. Yeah, I, and it's kind of like, you know, you're a sports guy, Steve, right? Yeah. I mean, there, there is also just the practical. When you're in the NFL, it is different. There's a speed and a pressure that's different than college, that's different than high school, that's different, you know. So yeah, there there is like when you're handed a $2 million an episode series with 300 True. people, there's a pressure and a, you know, there's a it's a different game than, you know, you're doing an HGTV show just you know you can't deny that it is just a different world now that doesn't mean that people can't rise to it and i do think you're right that like i got it i hadn't done live live before and ben silverman and howard owens you know met with me they heard my background they heard my passion for music because i'm a big i love music and i love country and i love you know rock and roll and i said you know look i can compensate for what i haven't done you know we're gonna have a you know here's how i'm gonna build a team around me to make sure we don't drop the ball on the live side, you know? Yeah, yeah. And then we pulled it off. We six seasons of that show, but anyway, yeah, it's a good question, man. And, and I think the days of like real world, which started our conversation, you know, it's those days of just having the freedom to say, Hey, I believe in you as a storyteller. I think you're, you're really talented. And if you're passionate for the subject, I think that's the key to it. Yeah. It isn't yeah. just jumping around as a job because that seems a little, it sounds a little, kind of mercenary like hey i could do anything send me to wherever and i'll go do whatever i'll knock it yeah, down it's like sure. you know if you if you take your craft seriously i think people who love you know it's like there's a there's an art to it and i think if you those who do the housewife show really know how to tell their shows personally i'm not interested in them i just i don't know how to i don't right. want it i'm not passionate yeah. about that i don't want to spend my days doing that but i completely understand people who do and now build shows and construction and home i love that because I, right. I love architecture and design and i love the power you know what i mean so i think yes. it has to come yes. first from your your passion as a person and that translates into your ability to execute it and that's yeah. that's that's, that's, that's a, yeah that's actually a good point it does come from the passion your, your what is your purpose what is your goal what is your passion yeah it's like the sneaker yeah. show you did right i mean you're a ah, sneaker yes. head and you killed <laughs> yes. it on that i don't know anything about sneakers yes. i have terrible sneakers and i and i and i couldn't learn them fast enough to do that run that show you did an incredible job on that thank you sir. and 
Yeah. And I think that's like came from your love for it and your curiosity around it. So very true. Thank you so much for the time. This was oh, great. Yeah, Thank you, man. It's it, yeah, it's fun. Um, really and, fun. And then you'll you'll it. have to come back with Will when we can talk about this project that you and Will have been on for yeah. over a year. So whenever you're able to talk about that, we'll bring yeah. you back. Yeah, I think it's uh, Netflix is going to launch it in June. So yeah, let's do it. I'd love to. Thank you so much, Steve. I appreciate it. Fantastic. And that's going to do it for another episode of No Script, No Problem here on the Believe Podcast Network. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe, download, and rate it with five stars. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and TuneIn. You can also find it at Believe.com and at Believe Podcast. And you can follow me on Twitter and Clubhouse at Steve Berkowitz and on Instagram at Steve M. Berkowitz. Email any questions you have to no script, no problem podcast at gmail.com. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Believe at Believe.com. Thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm Steve Berkowitz for No Script, No Problem. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.